With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and welcome to the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University. And I just finished having a fascinating interview with Jean Luen Yang, the uh, graphic artist who created Boxers and Saints. Now, usually... Um, for new books in Christian studies, we look at a book that you could say is academic. Usually it's, it's published by a university press. Uh, this is a little different. It's a graphic novel. And I wanted to include this book for several reasons. One is that, uh, first of all, it's, a, um, it's grounded in a lot of excellent history, right? Um, as, as a work of fiction, of course, uh, uh, Mr. Young does take some, um, does make a few uh, changes for dramatic sake. But for the most part, He's doing a really wonderful job of presenting um, the Boxer Rebellion from both the perspectives of the boxers and from the Christians, particularly the Catholics, who uh, found themselves in opposition. And he does, uh, through his artwork and through his story, he does a really um, good job of showing these different perspectives in a moving, powerful, and poignant way. And as such, I think it does really, he's doing really a great service in helping us to kind of understand this very, very different time period. And in particular, one reason I wanted to include it is that it pedagogically, I think it's really well suited for students. So a lot of people, especially if you're a professor, you're an academic or a high school teacher or even a middle school teacher who's listening to this, this is something you can really use effectively in the classroom, I think. Um, your students will read it because it's it's really good. It's not particular, and it, it's a pretty, I mean, it looks really nice. Um, and it really tells an effective story. And uh, Mr. Yang and I talk about this story, and he gives us some of the insights he had uh, that, that led him to make it. So uh, I hope you will, will listen to uh, this podcast uh, and enjoy it, and that you'll go out and uh, purchase Boxers and Saints so you can get the full story. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mr. Gene Yong about his new book, Boxers and Saints. Uh, Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me. Well, one, thank you so much for joining us. Now, one thing I want to mention to our listeners very briefly is that this is a little interviews a little bit different than what we usually do. A lot of times we look at so-called scholarly books, academic books. And today we're looking at a graphic novel um, called Boxers and Saints, which is about the Boxer Rebellion. And um, I think it falls within our purview of Christian studies. And what I like so much about this book is that it is a um, very well-researched historical exploration of the time period from multiple perspectives. So um, I think it's it's really a great thing, and it's something I actually try and bring into my classes. I like using graphic novels in my class, and I actually use this graphic novel in my honors class. And uh, so I'm really honored to have um, Gene here with us. So I wonder, Gene, if you could start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So well, first, thank you for, for using my, my book in your classroom. It's really an honor. Uh, you know, I, I've taught high school uh, for a while now. Uh, I just I know how pressed for time a lot of teachers are and for you to make time for, for my books with me. I, I, I deeply appreciate it. My, my name is Gene, Gene Yang, as, as you said, uh, and, uh, and actually the one you pronounce it is closer to the way it's supposed to be pronounced in, uh, in Chinese. Oh, okay. Um, but, <laughs> but I usually say Yang just because that's the Americanized version, right? And that's what people, that's what most people say. Uh, but I, 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 uh, I'm a Chinese American. I was born in the Pensacola uh, area. I spent pretty much all of my life in the same area. And the way I came to Boxer's and 
States was I grew up in a Chinese American Catholic community. When I was a kid, you know, I always thought of Chinese culture and and faith as going hand in hand. Whenever people were talking about God or, or Jesus around me, they were usually doing it in Chinese. And the church that I attended um, wasn't just about. I, I think this is true for a lot of ethnic churches in America. It wasn't just about uh, teaching the faith, right? It was also about preserving um, some some of the, the home culture, at least. So uh, we would we would have masses and, and Sunday school just like any other Catholic church. But then we would also do these very Chinese things. We celebrate Chinese New Year. Um, there's a uh, there's a Catholic. Uh, uh, holiday called, uh, or holy day, a Catholic holy day called All Souls Day, and the way we celebrated All Souls Day was very, very similar to how Chinese have historically honored um, their dead for centuries and centuries and centuries, even before Chinese culture came into contact with Christianity. So when I was a kid, Chinese culture, um, faith, you know, the Western faith seemed like they went hand in hand. As I got older, I began to realize that there actually is a tension there, that there's a tension between... Um, the way, like, Eastern and Western, traditional Eastern and Western views of the world. Uh, and as I got older and, and learned more about history as I got in college, I began to feel that tension more and more, especially within my own life. In, in 2000, in the year 2000, um, Pope John Paul II canonized uh, a group of Chinese Catholic saints. And this was the very first time that the Catholic Church has ever, ever done this. It was, it was, uh, it was kind of a big deal. My my home church flipped out about it. Uh, they had all sorts of celebrations. They, they made posters of of the saints. Um, they they had special masses and awesome food and you know everything. They had everything. So uh, all these celebrations encouraged me. They, they inspired me to look into the lives of these Chinese saints. And what I discovered was that many of them had been murdered during the Boxer Rebellion, during this war that was fought on Chinese soil in the year 1900. So up until this point, I vaguely remembered what the Boxer Rebellion was from my high school history class. And I think that's true of most history classes in America. You know, the, the, the Boxer Rebellion didn't mention at all, it may be a paragraph in the textbook. But I, after I looked into it, you know, after I looked into this war, what I found was, was really fascinating. And, um, you know, it was fascinating on a, on a number of different levels. First, uh, a lot of people consider the, the Boxer Rebellion um, the very first media war, meaning that it was the very first war, it was the very first conflict that people all over the globe were following on a daily basis through their newspapers. Uh, second, it's, it, people consider it a, a precursor to the two world wars, because the Boxer Rebellion was really the first conflict um, that was truly global, that involved both Eastern and Western countries. Um, so, so people, it, you know, it begins right at the beginning of the 1900s, in the year 1900, and it kind of is a, a precursor, almost like a foreshadowing of everything else, all the, all the other terrible things that happen in the century that follows. But for me personally, the reason why I latched onto it was that I saw within this conflict a mirroring of that conflict that I felt in my own life, you know, that, that conflict between Eastern and Western ways of, of thinking. The two sides of the Boxer Rebellion, on one side it was the European soldiers, European missionaries, the Japanese, and the Chinese Christians. And on the other side it was this uh, ragtag army of these poor teenagers, both of them were men. Um, they, were, they were, you know, um, boys from 14 to maybe men in their early 20s. And these men were supposed to be farmers. They, they grew up in farming communities in China, but it, it, all of the crops had died. China had, had just gone through a series of devastating droughts. So their, their outlook on life was really bleak. They had really short life expectancies. They're mostly uneducated, mostly illiterate. Uh, and they're really angry, too. They're really angry that the Europeans had come into China and established uh, multiple communities within China. Uh, so, so to empower themselves, these, these young men um, came up with this mystical ritual that involved bowing a certain way and involved controlling their breathing. And they believed that when they performed this mystical ritual correctly, um, they would 
be able to call the traditional Chinese gods down to the sky. <laughs> and these gods would possess their bodies and give them superpowers. And armed with these superpowers, they went and they fought the, the foreigners. They, they made it all the way, you know, that the rebellion lasted maybe a year, year and a half. They, they made it all the way up to the capital city of China where there was this final showdown in the summer of 1900. And um, after several weeks, they were put down. They, they were put down by some reinforcements that the British brought in from uh, from India. Right, right. No, that's excellent. Um, well, thank you so first of all for sharing you know your personal connection with this story, and then um, I thought that was a great encapsulation of the um, the uh, Boxer Re- Rebellion. Um, I never thought about it as being connected to World War One in that way. That was certainly interesting. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it came up in a couple of books that I read about the Boxer Rebellion. That, that it, it was kind of a, you know, it, it kind of it kind of foreshadowed all these different things that happened in the centuries that followed. So then, how does your your um, the and one thing for our um, our listeners, this graphic novel is in two parts. There's two volumes. Uh, one is boxers and one is saints, hence boxers and saints. So you've given us the background. Um, how do you then enter into this this conflict with your graphic novel? Well, I, I started, um, you know, so on, on the research side, I, I started reading about it simply because I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I just didn't know very much about it. So I started reading about it. Uh, I started researching, you know, for about a year and a half. I would go to my local university uh, library. Uh, uh, once a week at least, I've spent several hours there reading as much as I could about turn of the century China, about the Boxer Rebellion itself. Uh, and all the way through, I was looking for a protagonist. I was looking for a hero for the story. I couldn't find that hero because I would read one thing and I'd feel really sympathetic with the boxers, and I'd read something else and I'd feel really sympathetic with their um, Chinese Christian enemies. You know, and I just went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the two book structure was an expression of this ambivalence that I had, but I couldn't find this hero. Um, for uh, on the uh, you know the, the two books, um, I wanted them to look really different from each other. I wanted them to look and feel really different from each other. Historically, the, the boxers went on this long, epic journey, you know, uh, and. Um, in a lot of ways, their story lends itself a little bit better to comics, to graphic novels, to the graphic novel format, because there's lots of action, um, there's a lot of movement. And then the, the Chinese Christians on the other side, their story is much quieter. You know, it's um, where, where the boxers went on the long journey, the Chinese Christians mostly stayed in their own villages and just tried to stay alive. They, they did a lot of praying, uh, a lot of their... Um, a lot of the conflict was internal. You know, a lot of the struggle was internal. So just just from the source material, these two books just would have to be very, very different from each other. Uh, and, and in the end, what I like to do when I write is I like to have a motivating question for each book. So for boxers, that motivating question was, what does it mean to be a hero? Um, and, and because that was, that was sort of the, the thing that tied everything together, I wanted to pull visually from heroic storytelling traditions from things like American superhero comics or, or Chinese opera or Chinese war epics. And in each of those media, um, there's a lot of color, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of violence and action. Uh, and and for, for Chinese, I don't know if you've ever seen a Chinese war epic. Have you ever seen one? Like a, like a movie? Oh, yes, My yes. My favorite is this one. Oh, you have? Okay, great. My favorite is this one called uh, The Emperor and the Assassin. Okay, I've heard of it. Um, yeah, it's great. It's a great movie. Uh, but um, but Chinese warfare are always super long, full of color and blood, and really, really sad at the end. So that's what I wanted the boxers to be like. Super long, full of color and blood, really, really sad at the end. On, on the other side, um, for, for saints, you know, I, I thought that the motivating question ought to be, what does it mean to be a saint? So I, I thought about this for a while, and I realized that no matter... What religious tradition you come from, sainthood, like holiness, is always tied with this idea of humility. Uh, and uh, if, on both the East and the West, right? But, uh, any any world religious tradition, there will be this link between humility and holiness. 
So I wanted the second book to just feel much more humble than the first. In every way possible. That's why it's shorter. That's why the color palette is much more limited. I had even argued with my publisher to put it on cheaper paper. I wanted the outside to feel like cardboard and the inside to feel like newsprint. They were not into that idea at all. <laughs> so we didn't end up, we didn't end up doing it. And I think, um, I, I think in the end it was, it was a better decision not to do it because the book would have fallen apart a lot easier. But, um, but, and, and then the scope of the story, too, is, is much more limited. You know, the the boxer, in Boxers, the characters go all over the place, and things, mostly action takes place in, in these two different villages. Right. Well, that's one thing. My, I, I were, I'm colorblind, so I didn't pick this up, but my students picked up very well this difference you're describing here about how Saints, or I'm sorry, Boxers is so colorful, where Saints is a little, it's a little more gray in areas, uh, a little more monochrome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it's for, for Saints, for the color, I, um, you know, I didn't do any of the color. I, I worked with this amazingly talented cartoonist named Lark Pien. She's a, a good friend of mine, and she also uh, writes and draws her own comics. But because she's such a good friend, she agreed to, uh, she's, she's agreed to color a few of my comics. She did American War Chinese for me, and she did Boxers and Saints. So we worked together on a palette, and she was the one that chose the colors. But what, what, we, what we looked at for Saints, was um, we, we looked to sources that I felt like were more humble, you know, uh, than the superhero comics. American independent comics. We looked at a lot of American independent comics. And a lot of American independent comics will use this very limited color palette so that when you're reading them, it's almost, it gives you the feel of like reading somebody's diary. You, they, they use this very, um, they use very limited palettes as a way of building into the between the book and its reader. Right. Right. Well, that's <clears throat> very interesting about then how this all kind of came together. And so kind of, if I can go back, you had this question for boxers, what does it mean to be a hero and the difficulty in finding a hero, but you did come up with a protagonist, right? Little Bao. Um, I yeah. wonder if you could tell us a little more about him. Sure. So both of the protagonists are fictional characters. Um, I do have some historical figures in each volume. But, but the main characters are fictional. The Boxer Rebellion um, began among the poor of China. And, and just like so much of the history of the poor, it, it just wasn't very well documented. Uh, it, you know, nobody really knows for sure how the Boxer Rebellion began because nobody was writing about them until they got into the major cities of China and came into contact with the Chinese who were in power and, and the Europeans. Um, I read this book called Origins of the Boxer Uprising, which gave, gave several theories of how the Boxer Rebellion might have began. Talked about the Boxer Rebellion's link with all these different spiritual groups that were kind of roaming the, the Chinese countryside at the time. Uh, and I took uh, bits and pieces from all those theories and I used it to construct uh, a fictional life uh, timeline, you know, for, for Little Bao, for, for a fictional character. So Little Bao's life kind of pulls from a lot of those series that I read in that book. Right, no, is, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, as I read your, the, the, the um, was reading the, your graphic novel the first time, I said, this sounds a lot like um, History in Three Keys and the Origins, and I looked back to your bibliography, and sure enough. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that book, too. I, I think, um, I think that, you know, from that book, I, I learned that it, 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 that book was all about perspective, right? About historical perspective and how different, just taking on, putting on a different set of lenses will make history look very, very different. Right. So, um, and that was, I'm sorry, one thing that I, I did want to mention to our readers, because you, you talked about, or our listeners, you'd, you'd mentioned earlier about the artwork was it's really difficult as a historian to describe um, what the boxers believed and the kind of um, folk religion and this idea of spirit possession and the importance of operas and this connection between the divine and operas in China. And one thing I loved about especially the, the volume on boxers was you captured that so well um, in how you start with Little Bao. And then can you tell us um, how does he come into contact then with, with Chinese opera and with the divine? Well, this is, this is something that I read about, was that, you know, that the, the boxers had that belief that they could call down these, these traditional gods uh, from, from the heavens 
and the gods who possess them. Uh, as a lifelong comic book geek, you know, I started reading comics when I was in fifth grade. What I immediately thought of was Shazam. It really <laughs> felt like ancient Chinese Shazam, you know? These, these, these boys become heroes. Uh, and, and what I read in the research was that the way they learned about, because they're, they're mostly illiterate, the way they learned these stories in the first place was through Chinese opera. Back then, they didn't have television, they didn't have movies, uh, they didn't have comic books. What they had were these springtime fairs. Every spring, every couple of weeks, they would, they would have, uh, you know, local villages would gather together to have some kind of a fair. And um, they would have these traveling entertainers go from fair to fair performing. So of all of these entertainers, the most popular ones were the actors who would perform bits and pieces of Chinese opera. It would take, you know, China has this long history of opera, the long tradition. And, and the, you know, it's, it's, it's very well developed with a very specific style of music, with a very specific style of dress. And these acting troops wouldn't perform entire operas. They would just perform, like, the most exciting pieces. It was almost like, it was almost like YouTube. You know, right. they just, get the, <laughs> just get the best parts. So that's how, that's how these young men learned about their heroes. Uh, and, and as a lifetime comical geek, I immediately saw a parallel between that and, and, and like and like my people, you know, and, and a modern day comic book reader. So these young men, they watch their heroes up on the stage, and they want to become their heroes, just like just like we do. Like when we, you know, uh, today when we watch our heroes on the screen, a lot of us have that impulse that we want to become our heroes. So what do we do? We we make fancy costumes, we walk around comic book conventions, cosplaying. But for them, you know, it was, it was a much more intense thing. They they. Uh, they saw on the stage who they wanted to be. They saw on the stage models of power, and they wanted to embody those models of power. Uh, and and, and, they're, uh, and I think it was very understandable, too, why, why they felt that, that need to empower themselves. Right? So, uh, so in, the, in the book, um, you know, what I wanted to do in Boxers was to show visually how, the, uh, how these young men modeled themselves. Uh, how these young men saw themselves. Uh, so I actually show visual uh, transformations. When when the when young men perform rituals, they actually their bodies actually turn into the bodies of God. Yeah, and I I thought that was so effective. Um, and I'm just thinking about this pedagogically because I'm getting ready to teach history of modern China in. Um, I'll start on Monday, and I I think I want to get a still for, of that to put on the the the. Um, screen to explain to students, this is how these people saw this, and this is how they understood things. I thought that was just, um, that's one reason I like graphic novels, and especially yours, because it really shows that historical lesson very, very clearly. Well, thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Now, so you had, you said you had this broader question, how, what does it mean to be a hero? And you brought up this issue of how we want to emulate heroes, right? How does Little Bao try and do that? Well, Little Bao, um, you know, all, all the way through, he's the youngest brother. Uh, he, he isn't taken very seriously uh, when, when he's when he's a kid. And, and all the way through, what he really wants is he wants to be included by his older brother. He wants to be respected by his older brother, right? Uh, and, and finally, he gets a, a chance to do that. He ends up training with this uh, mystical, he's almost like a mystical martial arts master named uh, Master Big Belly, <laughs> who is actually based on somebody I read about in, in one of my books. He's actually a semi, he's actually a semi-historical figure. Okay. Uh, but after training with, uh, with Master Big Belly, um, now finally, finally figures something out. He finally figures out how to call the Chinese gods now from the skies. He finally figures out a way to empower himself, you know. And, um, and, and the god who haunts him is actually the first emperor of China. Uh, I, um, I, 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 thought, I thought it would be appropriate. You know, part of what the Boxer Rebellion was about, at that time, people were predicting, people all over the world were predicting that China was no longer going to be able to remain a unified nation, that China was going to end up breaking up into pieces. And that was in part why the Japanese and the Europeans had established, um, you know, these different communities there. It was because they were waiting for China to fall apart, and they each wanted a piece when it happened. Uh, I, I just thought that it, it, 
it, it would be appropriate to bring in the first emperor of China into a story about the possibility of China falling apart, because the first emperor of China was the one that put China together. Before him, China was actually in these seven separate kingdoms, and he, he kind of conquered them all and, and made, made them into a nation that lasted for, for centuries and centuries. But, um, but, but in, in my story, at least, uh, the first emperor kind of represents uh, a temptation to a certain model of heroism um, that discounts the um, the place of compassion uh, and and uh, like like that, that sort of presents heroism without any soft edges, right? And that leads to kind of a conflict then with within Little Bow, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That does that does lead to a conflict with Little Bow. That, that's sort of the central conflict that he, he struggles with is is what does it mean um, to to fight for his own culture, right? What does it mean to to defend his culture, and and where where does the culture end and the people begin? Right, because that was one thing that really struck me, and I don't know if this was intentional, and this may be me reading things into it. But when I teach world history, I always talk about with um, Emperor Shi Huangdi. You've got this. Um, he's a legalist, and he hates the Confucians, and uh, he buries yeah. them <laughs> and burns their books. And it almost seemed to me—I don't know if this was intentional—but there was a conflict between Little Bao's Confucian code that said things like "Don't lust after women, don't steal, protect the people," and then, um, of course, respect your father, who he he abandons, right? Uh, versus yeah, yeah. this kind of legalist code of Shi Huangdi. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, that was that was all. Uh, that, that was all. Yeah, that's great. That's great that you you, you read that. That's awesome. Okay. Well, and yeah, that, to me, to me, that's um, so little Bao. He um, he figures out he's or he learns how to be possessed and learns how to have this power. What what doesn't he do with it um, under the guidance of uh, of uh, Chi Huang Di? Well, he ends up he ends up starting the the boxer rebellion. So it, it, you know, in history, the boxer rebellion was was sort of a it, it wasn't the, the leadership of the boxer rebellion wasn't very centralized. It was actually a this loose knit collection of all these different groups of, of young men. And I allude to that right when Little Bao gets into the capital city with his groups of, a group of boxers, he realizes that there are all these other groups there. But what I had the role I had to play in the book was she was the one that just got the whole thing rolling. Uh, it, uh, you know, when, 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 after he gets possessed by the first emperor, that's, that's what he does. He, he goes and gets the whole ball Right, right. And how does he, well, how, what's his relationship with the Christians? Well, I think, I think, um, he sees, he sees the Christians in, in the way that the traditional, like the historical boxers did, which were, that they were devils. They, they sort of, they represented, um, I mean, it wasn't just evil that they represented. They really represented um, a, um, a betrayal of a culture. They represented an infiltration of, a, of, of something foreign into, uh, into Chinese culture. And, and, um, and I think historically for the boxers, they saw Christianity as, as something that the, uh, the Europeans used to weaken the... the uh, to, to weaken the Chinese, and they saw the Chinese Christians as conspirators in that thing. Uh, they, they, the, the boxers had a lot of these beliefs about um, male and female energy, about yin and yang, and they saw that there, there were a bunch of rumors about about these like bizarre practices that the Christians were supposed to do behind closed doors, uh, and, and a lot of it had to do with manipulating. Uh, female energy, right? And and uh, and and they use they use those rumors as a way of um, maybe justifying some of the things that some of the ways in which they they treated the Chinese Christians. Right, right. Well, and it's it's interesting that you should mention that because um, that maybe is a good segue to introduce these people, the Red Lanterns. Yeah, the Red Lanterns. The Red Lanterns are a historical group. That, that, that was something that I, I read about too. Is, is um, you know most of the boxers were were young men, but there was a small group of young women uh, who fought alongside the boxers, and they were they were uh, called the Red Lanterns. And historically, there were all sorts of rumors about the Red Lanterns. There was almost like 
Um, I mean, I, I, I think I think in a lot of cultures, in a lot of cultures, the woman is considered the other, right? And that was certainly true within boxer culture that the female, uh, the, the female, the female body was very much considered the other, and in a lot of ways, it was um, both as a, an object of desire and an object of fear. And there are all sorts of rumors about how the red lanterns had special powers, like they could fly and they could breathe fire, and, and they were like the strongest of, of all of the boxers. So I brought some of that into my narrative as well. Right. No, that, I thought that was really interesting um, there. And that fits in um, with this, uh, your other, or one of the other main protagonists is this woman, uh, May Wynn. Uh, uh-huh. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about her and her relationship with Little Bao. Well, May, May Wynn sort of, uh, yeah, she, she, she's kind of a love interest for Little Bao. And she, um, she you know, because she's a female character, uh, I, I wanted to um, explore that dynamic, you know, that yin-yang dynamic uh, with, with her character. And, and in the end, um, she ends up getting connected with Guang Ying, the goddess of mercy. Uh, I, I wanted a, uh, an identification between Guang Ying and, uh, and, and Mei Wen. I, I think, um, you know, I think, I think you, can, you, can, you can look at culture and tradition as, as a collection of stories and, and um, especially for for old cultures and, and old religions, there's just a lot of stories. You know, there's a lot of stories that make up that culture or that make up that religion. And often, um, often I think if you if you don't look at the collection as a whole, if you only focus on a part of it, you end up it just ends up being an incomplete understanding of the human experience. Uh, so that was that was sort of the thought behind um, May Wen. May Wen, by the end of the book, represents a more complete understanding of uh, Chinese culture because she understands both the justice side and the mercy side. You know, she she she's she's been immersed in in, in multiple stories from her own culture, uh, whereas uh, Lil Bao is is just focused more on one side. So in that sense, is she the answer to the question, what does it mean to be a hero? Yeah, I think she's part of it. She's part of it. You know, um, one of the, uh, yeah, she's, she's definitely part of it. And the other part of what you talked about is the Confucian understanding of of um, a person's place on earth and a person's place in life. So I, I really did have a little about turn his back on that. I, I, it, it, I think, I think um, you know, the first emperor of China is a very controversial figure, right? Different people think very different things about him. My reading of him is that, um, you know, he, he was, in a lot of ways, this really, like, he, he was just, he was just, he was a, a historical figure in the truest sense of that term. He was, he really made history, you know, and he accomplished things that are almost superhuman. But at the same time, his understanding of of what it means to be human it, it just feels incomplete, you know. Uh, and and I think in a lot of ways, the boxers mirrored that incompleteness. The historical boxers mirrored that incompleteness. Uh, and, and and I think you could trace it to uh, maybe an incomplete set of stories. The fact that he excised all that confusion influence from his own culture feels like. There's this big piece of what they need to be human that you are ignoring, or that you know that you're actively trying to rid yourself of. Right, right. No, he definitely, and, he, and I always feel bad. I mean, his own mom tried to kill him. I always feel bad for him. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, he, he did live a, a rough life, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that. One thing I found particularly one of my favorite parts, and I think very well done parts in this, is on page three twelve of Boxers. Um, where you have um, little Bao, where he, he's he's in his possessed form. He looks like uh, the opera god representation of the Qin Emperor. And then he talks about how he um, had done something. I don't want to ruin it for the, our readers, but he had done something Mei Wen told him not to do. And um, she sa- he says, I did it for China. And then she gives her definition of China, which is, what is China but a people and their stories? 
And I thought that was a really um, interesting way of describing Chinese identity. I mean that's that's uh, that sort of that's sort of what I talked about earlier. Where like where, where does the culture end and the people begin? You know, it's, it seems like sometimes you try to separate this idea of culture from the people who embody it. And, and I don't know if you can. I don't know if it's good to do that. Right. Well, one thing that just kind of struck me about it, and this goes in because you're your identity is a, a Chinese American, is that this is a Chinese identity that can work even when you're living outside of the um, territory that the um, that, uh, Chinese government exercises authority over. Yeah, I think, um, I, you know, within my own life, that's, that's always been something that I've, uh, I've struggled with, is how, like, what does it mean to be a, a Chinese American? You know, what is it? Like, like I, I visited China for the very first time, as an adult, maybe 10 or, or 15 years ago. And on that visit, um, things just felt like they still, it felt familiar yet unfamiliar. It felt like something that, like, like it, it felt like something that I should be at home in, but I wasn't quite at home in, you know? Uh, right. the, the, the whole trip felt like that. And, and I think on that trip, I realized that I really, I don't, I don't think I'm Chinese. I think, I, I think Chinese American is like this other thing. It really is a combination of, of East and West, uh, and, um, and and I think that so that ambivalence or that um, that feeling of discomfort shows up in a lot of my my stories. Right, right. Yeah, I've been meaning. I, I haven't had the chance yet. I really want to read the American-born Chinese. Um, so I imagine you deal deal more with that there, but I, I thought it was interesting. That's something I brought up when I taught the class. Um, I was I was hoping that they would see. So um, let's see. Could you tell me a little bit more um, about them? And I'm trying to. This is always this is a little different from our other interviews because I don't want to give too many spoilers to our audience. Because <laughs> um, uh, can you maybe tell me a little bit about this guy, Father Bay? Yeah, Father Bay. I, I, so here, here was my intention with with Father Bay was that I wanted him to come off as a complete jerk, <laughs> and then become more sympathetic and and, uh, and things. Um, Father Bay, uh, in boxers at least, I wanted him to embody a, a lot of the the negative action uh, and the and the negative mindsets that um, that I was reading about as I was reading. Uh, about the Boxer Rebellion, you know, um, a lot of missionaries back then, and, and what I read was, especially missionaries from certain Catholic quarters, were just really harsh in the way they, they dealt with the Chinese. Like, they would walk into Chinese villages, and without establishing any, any relationships, they would just go in and start smashing idols, which seems like, you know, at least from a modern perspective, it just seems like such a disrespectful thing to do. Uh, to to another culture, uh, and and because of these sorts of behaviors, uh, a lot of animosity developed within the Chinese against the Europeans. So I wanted I wanted Father Bay to embody a lot of that, uh, at least in the first book. In the second book, I was hoping to show uh, a different side, and I wanted to show that you know uh, his uh, ultimately the the thing that he got wrong was that he idealized the Chinese a little bit too much. It wasn't like, it wasn't like he looked down on them. It was like he over-ennobled them, you know, like he thought of them as these ideal people. And as he got closer to them and saw the same sins that he found in his own home culture, he just felt really disenchanted. And, and, and this is something that I read about too, you know, in, in reading about Christian missionaries a lot. So, so there, there, was a, there was a period of time when Christian missionaries went out and they um, they went out because they thought of other cultures as deficient, uh, and and maybe other people as a little bit below them, right? So they were going to go and they're going to try to bring them up, and then uh, and then almost as like a reaction to that, I think uh, another set of Christian missionaries went out and 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 they over idealized the people that they were they were trying to establish relationships with. So in both of those cases, you know, even though they seem like they're diametrically opposed, the, the root of it is the same. The root of it is that they see this other culture as 
something other than human, either more than human or less than human. And, and, and both of those cases are, I mean, both of those things are just incorrect. Right. Yeah, no, I, and I really, I mission accomplished in terms of making him look like a jerk and then making him more sympathetic. I mean, it really um, came through. And, and I really like, um, one thing for our readers that, that Gene does, I think, very well, or listeners, I'm sorry, uh, that Gene does, I think, really well, is there's lots of neat little details. So, for example, Father Bay in Boxers doesn't speak Chinese very well. And this is reflected in his, his dialogue. Uh, so he doesn't speak grammatically at first. And then later on it gets better. And then he understands what's going on more. Yeah, yeah, and, that, it, and, and again, that was that was out of something that I had read about that. Um, you know, a, a lot of um, a lot of early converts, especially to Catholicism, were criminals. They were actually converting to Catholicism to escape the Chinese legal system, right? And, and part of the way they were able to do that was through the 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 lack of language skills on the part of the, the, the Catholic missionaries because there was this language barrier. Often the Catholic missionaries didn't understand the nuances of the, the life situations of the new converts, so they were able to get away with stuff. Uh, and that ended up creating a lot of animosity among the Chinese. Right. And, <clears throat> no, I, and I, I thought he was just a fascinating character, and I, I do a lot of research on missionaries in Korea, and he just felt to me like so many of the French missionaries that were there. Um, and I think that that makes a good segue into volume two, perhaps. Um, so here we have the saints, right? And um, how does you said Father Bay becomes more sympathetic there? What, what happens with Father Bay? Well, I, I wanted to show that his, his motivations were. Uh, I, I wanted to show his motivations. I want to show that his motivations weren't necessarily from a bad place. That he actually, you know, he, he came to China for with good intentions. Um, I also wanted to show that he had a character arc, you know, that um, that uh, in the end he comes to a deeper understanding of his own faith and of, of humanity in general uh, than he had at the beginning. Right, right. No, that makes sense. And that um, he comes to that realization through his, I think, um, a lot of times through his relationship to Four Girl, uh, who's, I guess, the protagonist of Saints. So could you tell us a little about Four Girl? So Four Girl, as I said, was, is fictional, but she is based on somebody that I know. She's based on one of my relatives. I have a relative that converted to Catholicism as an adult. And um, like Four Girl, she had a grandfather who hated her. So my relative was born on a bad luck day, according to the traditional Chinese calendar. And because of that, her grandfather just never liked her. My relative also had a, uh, a younger sister who was born on a good luck day, and their grandfather loved the younger sister. So whenever the grandfather had treats, the younger sister would get them, and my, my relative just would not, right? So, um, so as an adult, she converts to Catholicism, and she never connects these two things together. Like when you talk to her about her conversion experience, she never mentions how she grew up. The, 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 the stories are just unconnected in her mind. But, you know, because I know her, I feel like the connection is really obvious. She wasn't able to find a place for herself in the culture that she grew up in. She wasn't able to find a reflection of herself in the stories of the culture. So she began to look to the stories of this other culture, right? Uh, and that was the dynamic that I wanted to play with within Four Girl. I wanted her to be somebody who had a hard time fitting in in the culture that she was born into. So she, she goes and, and looks to another culture for her own place. In, in, in my reading, too, it seemed like that was true of a lot of early Chinese Christian converts. They, they uh, you know, some of them converted for practical reasons, but a lot of them converted because they were looking for a place for themselves. And, and this foreign religion, this foreign community provided a place for them. Right, yeah, she gets a new name, right? Um, could you tell our listeners, yeah. what's the significance of being named Four Girl? Well, Four, uh, in, uh, you know, in, in traditional Chinese culture, Four is not uh, a great number. You know, we, we have lucky numbers and unlucky numbers. Nine is a lucky number, and, and Four is not. Four is not a lucky number because the way you see it sounds like death. It's right, Four and death are homonyms. Um, so... Uh, this was this was a, a you know this this happened from time to time in in China where a girl would be born 
and they just wouldn't be given a proper name. So so they'd be called by their birth order. I read somewhere that I think um, Mao's first wife had a name like that, had a name that was just a number. But um, but uh, um, you know I I don't I don't know if the motivation behind that naming convention is the same as I have in the book. But within the book, that you know being named after a birth order was sort of a, a sign of disrespect to to Ford girl herself. Right. I guess uh, a sign that she just doesn't have a place, a proper place in the family. Right, right. So, and that's that's really well done. I think in the in the <clears throat> graphic novel showing how she she doesn't have this place and she desperately wants her grandfather's approval, and that then leads to her to meet a raccoon. Yeah, yeah. That that leads her to meet a raccoon. Yeah. So I wonder. If you, I, you know, in terms of why I chose the raccoon, I think I just liked I just like raccoons. I wanted to draw a raccoon. <laughs> I don't know. If I had a different reason than that. No, it was great. Um, so what? But this is a special raccoon, right? What's special about it? Well, the raccoon sort of embodies the temptation for her. You know, uh, 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 a temptation to be hard, a temptation to um, to, to fight against uh, all the injustices that she has in her life. Right. To okay. Fight against them in a certain way. Yeah. To fight against them in a certain way. Yeah, it's really strange because this is a, a talking raccoon. Right, and she how did she sees it as a demon, right? Yeah, she kind of sees it. She kind of sees it. The the, the, the raccoon encourages her to become a devil. Right. Um, her her grandfather calls her a devil, and the raccoon encourages her to actually embody that as best she can. Right. So, how does she then go from being a, a wannabe devil to being a Christian? Well, I mean, in, for a, for a Chinese at the turn of the century, that was not that big of a leap. Because they call the Christians devils, so um, so Christianity, in a lot of ways, embodied everything that was seen as evil. You know, um, so so ultimately, if she wants to be a devil, the best way for her to do it in her setting was to convert to the sworn faith, to turn her back on her family, to turn her back on her culture, and and embrace the uh, the religion of the invader. Right. Yeah, I love this, because then she goes in, uh, well, I guess uh, that, okay, so that being said, so she comes into contact then with to Christianity with this guy, Dr. Wan, or is it Dr. Wan? I, Dr. Wan, yeah, Dr. Wan. Okay, Dr. Wan. Uh, so I, I don't, I, my main language, second language is Korean, so I always, that's why I got your name somewhat right, <laughs> because in Korean it would just be Yang. Um, yeah. But the, um, so Dr., and I want to make him Won, it, should, it would be Won in Korean, um, Dr. Wan. Who's he? Yeah, he, he's actually based on a historical figure. So I mentioned earlier that John Paul II canonized a group of, of Chinese Catholic saints. And, um, and and one of the saints that he canonized is now known as St. Mark of China. St. Mark, uh, like Dr. Wan, was an acupuncturist. He was a lifelong Catholic. He was born into a Catholic family. Um, and he was known for seeing poor people for free. Like he would treat poor people for free, just like Dr. Wan does in the book. Uh, and um, and now for St. Mark, when he was in his 40s, he developed really bad stomach issues, and he ended up treating himself with opium. After that, his stomach issues went away, but he became addicted to opium. And it was an addiction that he struggled with for the rest of his life, but he lived 30 more years. Um, all the way through, he, he kept trying to, to kick this addiction, and he just couldn't. You know, they, uh, they, they, they had a very different understanding of addiction back then than, than we do today. So his parish priest actually excluded him from communion. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and for Catholic, that's like a, that's a big deal, right? That's like being excluded from your community, that's being excluded from your family. And that's living in, in a sense, that's living in public shame. And he did that for 30 years. Uh, at the very end of his life, um, the Vox Rebellion happened. He was killed along with his entire family during the Boxer Rebellion, uh, and um, and on the day of his death, he was still addicted to opium. He never got over that habit. He never got over that addiction. A hundred years after his death, the, the Catholic Church canonizes him, and um, and as far as I know, he's the only addict saint that the Catholic Church has. Oh wow! But I think his life. 
points to this dynamic that even if you you know even if you're struggling with something and even if you never get over what you struggle with, your life is still worthwhile. Right. You, you can still live uh, a, a saintly life. Uh, so I, I wanted to. You know, I, I, I wanted to include him in my book. In the end, I decided to change the name because I felt like I had deviated too much from his life story. Right. Uh, so, you know, I don't show any of his kids or his grandkids, and, um, and, and, and I felt like I couldn't keep his name because I deviated too much. But, right. But Dr. One is very much based on, on St. Mark of China. And so how does he then come into contact with Four Girl? Well, he comes into contact with Four Girl because... Um, like early on, poor girl uh, develops a devil face, so she figures out a way of configuring her own face so that she looks really monstrous, and her her mother's really worried about it. So she takes poor girl to go see an acupuncturist to go see Doctor Wan, um, and and during that visit, poor girl learns that he's actually Christian because he has a crucifix hanging in his office. Later, when she gets the idea that the best way for her to become a devil is to converse this one faith. She remembers that crucifix and goes back to, to see Dr. Wan to, to figure out how to complete her devil training of becoming a Christian. Right now, I, I, how did, I, I had to say, I thought that was just so funny um, that this idea was that she wants to become a Christian so she can be a good devil. Um, I, mean, I, I thought that was great. My students really enjoyed that too. Can you tell us, how did you come up with that idea? I just felt like it was it was in the source material, you know. It was uh, I guess it was a connection between the stories I heard from my relatives and the source material. You know, in the source material, the the the, the Christians are just always referred to as as devils and demons, and seen as these embodiments of evil. Right. No, I thought that was was very very effective. And then she just um, she tells Doctor Wan, of course, she wants to become a Christian. Um, is she then really into the faith? I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, she tells Dr. Wan she wants to become a Christian. He's so excited. Um, what keeps her coming back to learn more about Christianity? Well, yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's true for a, a lot of people who, um, who end up becoming religious as adults, you know, including me. I, I think, um, I think a lot of us, when we are first introduced to faith, when we when we first learn about it, we may not have the purest motives. It's not it's not always like, oh, I want to find the meaning of life, so therefore I'm going to go to church or I'm going to go to the Bible study. Often it's, oh, this church they give me free pizza, so I'm going to go. Yeah. Or there's this cute girl in the Bible study, so I'm going to go. And and that was true for me too, right? That was true for me. I, I, I always when I was growing up. You know, part of the reason I went to Sunday school was because my parents made me, and the other part was because there were two girls in the class. So, uh, so for four girls, it's the same thing. You know, she she doesn't necessarily have a deep understanding of uh, of her faith. You know, when she converts, uh, she doesn't necessarily have the purest of motives to to uh, in in her conversion. Um, but ultimately, she still finds what she wants through through her faith and through her involvement in this. Community. She finds a place for herself. Right, right. And I just love it. Yeah, for her, it's it's gluttony, right? She wants those cookies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She wants the cookies. She wants cookies. Exactly. So, and, like, oh, I want to keep going. Well, this is again. This is why I really like about this because I'm teach um, some. Of the, I do a lot on history of religion when I'm teaching, and I, I want. I think students sometimes either have. And it's similar to what you were saying about how missionaries were seeing China, either looking down on something or holding up too highly. And I like yeah. that you got that in with this um, with her conversion. Is it's it doesn't start off really for the best of reasons, um, though she does later on kind of own it herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's true for me. I feel like that's true for me. I feel like that's true for a lot of us. Right, a, a lot of us who um, are are. Are, uh, continue to be part of the faith tradition when we're adults. Um, uh, I, I think uh, for, for a lot of us, we can see that at the beginning, it just it wasn't like we were we had these pure motives, uh, and and ultimately things would still turn out okay. Right, and I thought especially on on pages sixty four and sixty five of your book, um, 
where you have this conversation between her and Father Bay, where she confesses that she did this really terrible thing. I won't tell the readers or listeners what it is. Uh, you have to buy and read the book to know. But she confesses that she's done this really terrible thing, and um, she wants to know if that will be forgiven through baptism. And Father Bay um, says it will be. And I just wanted to note, because I thought this was just really effective um, in the terms of the art, how her facial expression changes and how she skips away and is very happy about this. Um, and uh, I just wanted to mark that as something I thought was really an effective scene. Oh, well, thanks. That, that also, um, that, that was also, like, that, that wasn't something I made up. That was something I stole from somebody else, from, from a friend of mine, a, a friend of mine who um, uh, eventually converted to uh, evangelical Protestantism. When he was in high school, he had this kid in his class who just picked on him constantly. Uh, and, um, and he, he actually hoped in his heart for something bad to happen to that kid, and eventually something did. Oh, no. Something bad happened to that kid, and he just lived with that guilt for a long time. Uh, and, and, and it was a part of his, um, you know, it was, it was a part of his faith journey. That, that piece was part of his faith journey. So I, I, I thought that that was a really interesting dynamic that I wanted to play with within fiction. Right. Well, no, it came through very, very strongly. So one thing I thought was was also, um, I do a lot with um, studying Korean martyrs. And a name that always comes up is um, Bibiana. Um, the Koreans, I don't, in, in, in your book, it's Vibiana with a V, but Koreans don't have a V, so it's Bibiana. Um, and uh, that becomes Four Girls' new name. So I'm just curious, is there a reason why you chose that particular name for the saint? Well, I chose I chose it because the root of it is life, right? Viv is life. So okay. it's a poor girl, the root of the four is death. The oh. root of her new name should be life. Okay. Uh, but but you know, after after I chose that name, after I chose that name and, and, and there is a, there is a historical thing to be within the Catholic Church, the Roman martyr from the from the early century. But um but after I chose the name I realized that Saint Viviana is actually the patron saint of Los Angeles. Not that oh. that's connected with the story in any way, but I just thought that was kind of cool. Oh, that, is, <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah, she keeps coming up in, um, I think t- maybe two of the Korean martyrs um, that are saints are Vivianas, at least two. And they, they tend to be perpetual virgins that then got got killed. Okay, okay. So that's, well, that's stupid. <laughs> that, that's why that came up. But I thought that was really um, interesting. Now the the saint though that makes that's the most important in a sense in this work is a different saint, uh, Saint Joan of Arc. Yeah, Saint Joan of Arc. Um, I've always liked Saint Joan of Arc. I think a lot of us do, just because she's such an interesting character and such an embodiment of contradiction. What what I found myself doing when I was researching the Boxer Rebellion is uh, I just I I kept feeling like the Boxers were like Joan of Arc, or Joan of Arc was like was like the boxers. You know, here they're they're both teenagers, they're both um, they're both powerless, they come from the, the lower rungs of their societies. They're both really angry about uh, a foreign presence within their homelands. Uh, and and then they both empower themselves with these spiritual beliefs that as as moderns we would find kind of weird. So in in a lot of ways I thought, you know, the the boxers were like Chinese Jones of Arc, or, or Joan of Arc was like a French boxer, and um, I thought I could use that dynamic to create some tension within Viviana's life. You know, so um, early on, I have Viviana, and I have a vision of Joan of Arc, you know, and at the end, I wanted there to be this question, what does it mean for her to pattern herself after Joan of Arc? Does it mean that she should become Catholic like Joan of Arc was, you know, or does it mean that she should defend her her culture against this invading force, like Joan of Arc did, right. like the boxers are doing. Right, and it, yeah, that came through really well, and I just I, I thought that was very powerful. And I would love to ask more about it, but I want to shy away because I want our, like I said, I want our listeners to buy and read uh, to see what happens because it is really, really a well done story in terms of that question: What does it mean to be a saint? Uh, maybe a question, though, I can ask that won't be too much of a spoiler, though, is that Guan Yin comes back in uh, in this story. H- how so? Yeah, well, I, years, years ago, years ago, I, I went to the uh, Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, and I saw this painting of Guan Yin, of the Chinese goddess of compassion, uh, 
it was an ancient, ancient painting, centuries and centuries old. Uh, and it showed her in the middle of the painting, surrounded by this halo of hands. Within each hand was this eye. Uh, right. Um, and in, in the inscription next to the painting, it said that these hands with eyes in it were a symbol of compassion. The, the eyes represented that Guangying was always looking for suffering, and the hands represented that she was always trying to reach out to relieve that suffering. The, the, uh, you know, as, uh, as, uh, as somebody who grew up in the Catholic Church, as somebody who was still a practicing Catholic, those eyes and hands really looked like crucified hands to me. You know, the, ah. and, and within, within, like, uh, within Chinese medicine, uh, the eyes are considered holes. Like the, the, the Chinese talk about how you have seven holes in your head. You have your two eyes, your two nostrils, your mouth, and your two ears. So the eyes are holes. So the eyes and hands, holes and hands, it just felt like there was something maybe universal within that symbolism. And, and eyes and hands, you know, you, you find it in, 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 um, in certain um, types of uh, Jewish mysticism. You find it in certain uh, types of, of uh, Islamic mysticism. It just seems like there's something... There's something very universal about that symbolism. So I wanted to play with that within the book. Well, I think, and it was really, again, I, I don't want to be a spoiler, but artistically I thought it was really interesting how you make this connection between the eyes of Guanyin and the um, the wounds on Jesus' hands, like you, you just mentioned. I think that's really well done. And it's really striking part, which and I, I think those are the pages where you answer this question, what does it mean to be a saint? And I, I don't want to to spoil that for people, the answer. Um, but I thought it was really, really well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. One thing, if I could add, um, one thing, if I could, I wanted to share something from my class uh, to see if I could get your reaction. Um, the, the class I taught was called Popular Culture in East Asia. And um, we read um, a uh, couple, we read several different manga. Uh, we read Akira, and we read um, Azumanga Daio. Um, Akira is a Japanese action manga. Uh-huh. Azumanga Daio is a high school drama. It's it's cute. It's 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 amazing. It's a high school where there's no conflict. Um, okay. And it's 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 just a very cute story. And what was interesting was, um, and are you familiar with either of these two titles? I've I've watched the Akira movie. I've read a few of the Akira volumes. I haven't read anything from the other. Okay. Well, well, one thing that was really striking was we were we read your book last in in my class, and the students liked uh-huh. it the most of the of the three graphic novels. They liked this one the best. And one thing that struck me was that when they described why they liked it, one thing they said was that we could understand it much better. Um, it uh-huh. just made narratively, it just made more sense to them than than the others. So that to me on one side that seemed to me then it was okay, well this is all my all my students except for or actually three of my all my students were from the West except was except for one who was um, originally from India. But they all were very con- comfortable I think with more of a I guess you could say a Western style narrative. At the same time though it struck me that in your book these are where the characters look the most Asian, right? Akira doesn't it does no one looks particularly Asian. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a stylistic thing that that was developed in China. Though the explanation, I'm sorry, in, in Japan, um, the explanation I've heard is that you know the the most probably, arguably the most influential manga artist, the influential manga cartoonist is a guy named Osamu Tezuka, right. who's most well known as the, the creator of Astro Boy, and um, he was a huge Disney fan, so he thought that the appeal of Disney characters rested in their eyes, that they had such big, expressive eyes. So he started doing that with his own characters. That's why Astro Boy has these giant eyes. And, and, and the, the artists that he influenced, the artists that came with the generations after him, kind of took that idea and ran with it. And, and you end up getting, you know, there's some Japanese cartoons where the, the characters' eyes are, like, bigger than their heads, you know? Right, like, yes, they yes. Take up, like, two-thirds of their head. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's, it's sort of a stylistic thing. And, and what I've read... From my understanding is that, you know, um, even though the faces are incredibly stylized and, and cartoonified, um, those characters are still Japanese. Oh, right, like, right. Even Sailor Moon with her blonde hair still fits because it's still seen as Japanese. Right. 
right? I just thought that was, I don't know, there was just something that kind of struck me as very interesting about that was that, um, but yeah, thank you for your explanation. That makes a lot of sense. So um, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'd like to ask you then our, our traditional last um, question on New Books Network. What are you working on now? Well, I've got a couple of projects coming up. Number one is I work on uh, comics for the Avatar The Last Airbender uh, series. Avatar The Last Airbender was a cartoon that showed on Nickelodeon from 2005 to 2008. Uh, Nickelodeon licensed the property to Dark Horse Comics, who is continuing the, the adventures in, in comic book form. I've been working with them for... Uh, two, three years now, and, and we have another three volumes coming out in 2015. The second project that I'm working on is called Secret Coders. I'm really excited about this. It's, uh, I'm, I'm working on it with a really talented cartoonist named Mike Holmes. I'm doing the writing, and he's doing the art. Uh, and this is my first explicitly educational comic. Ooh. It's all about computer coding. I was a computer science major. I taught computer science for over a decade. So this is kind of the melding of my two worlds. I'm taking my my teacherliness and my cartooning and, and putting them together. We're telling the story of a group of uh, a group of junior high students who find a secret school. So it's kind of like Harry Potter in that sense. You know, there's a secret school, but the secret school instead of teaching magic teaches computer coding. And we're hoping as as uh, you know as our protagonists will learn to become coders that our readers will too. Oh, that sounds really cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, Mike, Mike is a joy to work with. His artist just has this energy that just leaps off the page. Well, thank you again for taking the time um, to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Frank. This was, this was great. Thank you very much uh, for listening to this interview of the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Uh, have a great day and hope to hear from you again.